Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to a new episode of the AJ Bruno Show. Uh, we have a fantastic guest today. I am privileged to welcome Thomas Pickering to the show. He is one of the most accomplished diplomats in U.S. history, who perhaps most prominently served as Ambassador to the United Nations and Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. Hello, sir, and it's a great honor to speak with you. Thank you, AJ. It's a pleasure to be with you. Sure. So I read that your original plan was to join the ministry. How did you go from that to deciding to pursue a career in foreign affairs instead? Well, it was sort of more influenced by my family and my mother in that regard. And when I got to college, I decided I didn't have a call uh, to be a minister and was really quite interested in my life and history and international affairs, international relations. So it morphed without much difficulty in that direction. And in my later years in college, a number of the professors I had encouraged me to take the foreign service exam. So that all seemed to fit together. Great. So early in your career, you received a Fulbright scholarship and studied in Australia. How influential was that experience for you? Well, it was extremely uh, influential in many ways. Uh, First, it was an opportunity for a whole year to look at the United States from a long distance away. (laughs) Secondly, I had a great opportunity when I was in Australia uh, to write a thesis for a master's degree in Australia. That was the way at the university I attended, Melbourne University, that one got a master's degree. And during that year, I did extensive research on the long and gradual development within Australia of the power to conduct foreign affairs. It didn't all come at once. It didn't all come with independence, but it was a long and slow and developmental process. And so I had an opportunity to analyze, in that sense, the elements that made up a country's foreign affairs power and looked particularly at Australia at how it was acquired from the middle of the 19th century when the then separate colonies in Australia opened trade offices around the world to the period in and around the Second World War when Australia went from a country that had no really, uh, not really any overseas representation uh, to beginning here in Washington, interestingly enough, a strong representation in the British Embassy and then later morphed in the period of the 40s to develop its own series of embassies and offices abroad uh, and more and more its own foreign policy. But there were critical times in that development. The most interesting and perhaps the one of the most important was in the mid-30s uh, when uh, the British Parliament gave the then so-called dominions, they were the white dominions at the time, uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. South Africa was white because it was dominated by an apartheid white government. Uh, The power to conduct some limited amounts of international activities outside of uh, the limits of uh, British control from, from the parliament at Westminster in London. So it was a very interesting time. And I got an entirely different perspective on the world. I ended up traveling by sea to Australia and then from Australia to Britain on my way home, got married on the way home to a fellow student who'd been with me as as a graduate school the year before I went to Australia and came back and went immediately into the U.S. Navy and then spent 
some three years uh, abroad after Navy training in Morocco at a at a uh, at a naval base that we had set up a naval air station we had set up in Morocco. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so, what was the I guess the extent of your experience in between uh, that time and when you first uh, started serving um, in the State Department? Well, uh, as soon as I got out of the Navy, I went into the State Department. So there was mm-hmm. really no gap. As a matter of fact, I got out of the Navy on the 30th of, of May in 1959, and by the 15th of June, I was at work in the State Department. They gave me a temporary job until I could start formally in a class uh, of new foreign service officers. Uh, so I worked from June to August in a portion of the State Department that I knew nothing about at the time and never served in subsequently, but it was the personnel office, and we were hiring people for the State Department. It was an interesting way to get broken in. I had taken the exam for the Foreign Service, the written portion of the exam, uh, some six years before that in 1953 when I left uh, undergraduate school at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, and had passed the written exam, And then we had a long interruption of a year or two uh, during Senator McCarthy's time uh, when, in fact, the State Department had shut down taking new people. And just before I went to Australia, I had an opportunity to come uh, here to Washington and take the second stage of the Foreign Service exam, the oral exam. I passed. Uh, They said I could start. uh, That was October and January. I said, I'm off to uh, Australia for a year on a government scholarship, and then we'll have to spend some time in the American Navy. And he said, it's okay, we'll keep you on the list. So while I could have started perhaps as early uh, as early 1954, I really didn't start uh, in the State Department until June of 1959. Oh. So you got to work closely with Secretary of State William Rogers and Henry Kissinger as a special assistant. What was that like? Well, I was special assistant for both William Rogers and Henry Kissinger, uh, William Rogers for a very short time. I went to work for him actually as executive secretary of the State Department. The State Department at the time <clears throat> that um, um, uh, George Marshall came in as secretary in the in the period after the Second World War uh, for Harry Truman uh, had no central administrative group supporting the secretary. And uh, George Marshall had been very impressed with the work of the Army Secretariat that supported the Army Chief of Staff. So we started a similar organization, the State Department. Uh, I had worked in Washington in the State Department in political military affairs uh, from the beginning of 1960, probably 1961, uh, through uh, a, a period uh, into uh, 1962, uh, went overseas to Geneva, worked on disarmament, uh, went overseas then afterward to, to work in um, uh, East Africa for almost four years, then came back and uh, continued my work in political military affairs. Uh, and it, during that time, I worked for Secretary Rogers directly on a number of congressional hearings. Uh, And just before he left, although we didn't know he was leaving the State Department, uh, in 1973, he asked me to come and be executive secretary of the State Department, which I did. And with that went the automatic title of special assistant to the secretary. So I worked daily with Secretary Rogers and with Secretary Kissinger when he came into the department uh, in August of, uh, of 1973. 
and stayed with them until February of 1974 when Secretary Kissinger asked me to go to Jordan as ambassador, which I, which I welcomed for a number of reasons. The opportunity to get out again and to go to the Middle East was important. Uh, Secretary Kissinger was not an easy man to work for, no. and the executive secretary's job was right at the focal point when anything happened to go awry. So it was a fascinating, interesting, and somewhat demanding job. Sure. Well, that's a great lead-in, actually. So you've been an ambassador in six different countries. Uh, what is the day-to-day life like of an ambassador, and in terms of your schedule, interaction with foreign leaders, and the sort of security you're subjected to? Well, each country is different, and so I've had a vast number of different places to work in. Uh, in Jordan, which was my first post, I worked uh, very frequently with King Hussein, who I admired a great deal, uh, a very wise man, a very deeply plugged-in man to the difficulties of the Middle East, and I learned a great deal from him and had an opportunity in those days to see him perhaps as often as once or twice a week, depending upon the situation. In other places, much later on in Russia and India, the number of times you saw the head of state was not measured in weeks or months, sometimes just a few times a year, and often revolved around the visit of the American head of state, in which you attended the meetings that he had with the foreign head of state, in those cases, uh, President William Clinton uh, with uh, with uh, President Yeltsin in, in Russia. Uh, so each time in each place is quite different. But in many ways, an ambassador has full responsibilities. He's kind of an unofficial mayor of the American community. He or she is very much the uh, voice of the United States uh, on radio, television, giving speeches and that kind of thing, and depended heavily upon to convey American views and attitudes. Uh, The ambassador is often the person who reports first and foremost back to Washington on what foreign leaders are thinking, whether it's foreign ministers or or heads of state or other cabinet officials or uh, senior members of the legislative branch of foreign governments. You enjoy opportunities to work with them. I spent perhaps in Russia as much as 20% of my time working with the American business community. And so that's an important piece. In Russia, I traveled extensively. I was the first American ambassador to enjoy the benefits of very few travel restrictions in terms of where I could go without having to give formal prior notice. I think in the entire time I was in Russia, of the 89 equivalents then of American states, I had visited over 50 of them uh, and uh, traveled a lot of that distance by road, uh, which was an interesting way to see Russia. Uh, Many of my predecessors had traveled out. They had to give notice to do so and, in a sense, get Russian approval or Soviet approval. I could get in my car and go wherever I wanted to go, obviously with the exception of military installations and things like that, Mm. uh, to see the country and talk to people. So it was an opening experience in many ways uh, with the end of communism. I came along about a year and a half or two after that had happened and took advantage of those opportunities uh, through out the three and a half years I was in Russia. In between, many other states were were very different. Uh, El Salvador was tightly restricted by the fact that we had an ongoing insurgency of serious dimensions at the time, and security was very much looked at. When I was in Israel, security was a problem, uh, but not as restrictive as it was in El Salvador. Uh, And for quite some time in Israel, uh, I traveled around with my wife throughout uh, the country and as well through the uh, territories uh, occupied 
by Israel that were mainly uh, residents of Palestinians. Uh, and uh, because I had been in Jordan before that and learned some Arabic, I was able to get along pretty well uh, and with few problems. And a number of the mayors of the Arab-Palestinian towns and cities were people that I had met often when I was in Jordan in the waiting room of King Hussein, waiting to see him along with them, and we would always strike up a conversation and get to know each other. So it was interesting from that point of view. Africa was an extremely interesting period. I spent four years and some little time in East Africa. I had an opportunity to study and learn Swahili. I used Swahili as a working language for two years in Zanzibar and quite often two years following that in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Uh, and still retain some fluency and capacity in the language today. Uh, I was very lucky as an ambassador to have an opportunity to be able to study foreign languages and made it a point wherever I could uh, to spend the first hour of every day uh, working often with a local instructor or tutor uh, in trying to learn uh, the language of the country that I was assigned to. Mm-hmm. Sure. And actually, on that note, I was going to mention this later, but I'll I'll bring it up now. Uh, you're fluent or fairly proficient in six languages besides English, and uh, well, few of those I, I would say I did business in French, in mm-hmm. Spanish, and in Swahili. I learned a good bit, but I would not pretend to do business no. uh, in Arabic, Hebrew, and Russian and studied a few other languages for shorter periods of time, Hindi and Urdu in India, but I was there only 10 months, and Hausa in Nigeria, where in southern Nigeria I could only find an instructor who would come once a week, which was not a way to make much progress in the language. But it was beneficial in some ways and and helpful and interesting in others. The more intensive work I did an hour a day, which was not really, I think, sufficient to capture the language in terms of being able to do business in it, was useful in many ways in getting to understand something of how local people express themselves, what were important elements in their culture, and how they looked particularly outward at the rest of the world through the focus of their language. And So a language is a cultural tool as well as a, a communications device. That that dedication, I think, is important, and and nowadays a lot of um, diplomatic posts, I feel like maybe there's not the same emphasis on that. I agree, and I think uh, for diplomats, the opportunity to learn foreign languages is a a, a great assistance in a number of places. I can remember sitting uh, in a meeting in Zanzibar in a small island on the edge of the Indian Ocean, Uh, with the communist Chinese consul, with whom we had no relations, with the Russian consul, with whom we had difficult relations, Uh, Mm -hmm. with the French consul, neither of of them spoke Swahili, and I had to carry the conversation (laughs) with the president of the country. (laughs) One of the two of them had interpreters, but they could barely stay up with what what I and the president were talking about. So it was an obvious advantage to have a language under those circumstances. Sure. So uh, during your tenure at the U.N., you played an instrumental role in building a coalition for Operation Desert Storm. Uh, what are your thoughts on your role in, that in retrospect, and do you think it would have, been, would have made a difference had Saddam been deposed then instead of later on? Well, I, I think that it was a very interesting time because with the demise that was coming on 
of the Soviet Union and its uh, communist preoccupations, if I could put it that way, we had an open field, and both uh, President George H.W. Bush and Secretary Baker played an inordinately important role in bringing those countries along with the key resolutions, particularly the one on the use of force. In the meantime, I had pretty much uh, a strong and supportive group around me in New York, both my own people and people like Britain and France, and then a number of other countries, members of the Security Council, and we made it uh, obviously a strategy uh, to build our relationship in the Security Council um, between the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait at the beginning of August of 1990 uh, and the passage of the use of force uh, resolution at the end of November. Uh, we had 12 resolutions in that period go through the Security Council and worked very hard to do two things, to never let the Security Council pass a day without being preoccupied with Iraq on the one end and never let them uh, move away from the fact that during that period of time, putting things together uh, in New York at the UN, they were perhaps uh, for the purposes of international relations and certainly for the purposes of U.S. foreign policy support from the UN, the most important club in the world. And while we had Yemen and Cuba on the Security Council at the time, uh, we were able to do all the things that we wanted to do with majorities in the Security Council of between uh, 10, 12, and sometimes 14 votes uh, that were very, very helpful for us in legitimizing the use of force when we had to, but also constraining Saddam. Uh, my own view was that uh, Saddam was pushed back, that we failed in creating uh, the end of the war in terms that I thought we could have that would have boxed Saddam in a great deal more than we were able to do. Not by going to Baghdad, but by creating zones inside of Iraq uh, where he was very limited in the forces that he could deploy and where we and other members of the UN would in part uh, be the peacekeepers and the patrollers of zones inside Iraq, uh, which would be free of Iraqi military forces, mainly underpopulated areas in western Iraq, but close enough to places where the civil war was then going on in Iraq following uh, the loss of Kuwait of Saddam, where he, in the absence of our presence, if I could put it that way, was able to bring the Shia a majority of the country back under his control. But where had we had direct contact with them, I think would have been in a much stronger position. And a number of us in New York uh, proposed those kinds of approaches. Uh, they were turned down, I think, mainly, unfortunately, by the U.S. military, who thought only of retri retrieving forces from the region and not staying there. In the end, we ended up staying there forever. In the end, we ended up uh, controlling the air. In the end, uh, British and French were quite interested in that kind of a solution and supportive of it and willing to contribute ground forces. So those were, I think, uh, errors that we uh, should have paid more attention to, uh, to, uh, to, to try to rectify, but were not able to. Uh, and that left Saddam free and open once again to control his entire country, uh, to exploit the money he was making on oil, to use that in some ways to corrupt people 
uh, in and around Iraq uh, with payments uh, to support him uh, in his own efforts to stay alive in his own country. And I think uh, had we been tighter and tougher on Saddam, not in, 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 in trying to take over Baghdad or replacing him, but hemming him in, uh, we would have had a much stronger position uh, with respect to him and maybe would have had to, uh, a clear capacity to avoid our invasion in, in Iraq in 2003. Now that definitely makes sense. So your final official State Department role was as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. What was being the number three in the Department of State like? It was fascinating. It was a job that covered worldwide uh, political questions and related questions. Uh, I had an opportunity to work for Secretary Albright, who, in my view, uh, was uh, very sharp in terms of what she was doing. I knew and understood the the world as well as anybody uh, and was particularly adept uh, at uh, running things. I uh, looked after a large share of what was going on that neither she nor her deputy, Strobe Talbot, uh, were able to work on or were interested in working on. And so it was my job to assure that the rest of the world, if I could put it that way, and the assistant secretaries of state, particularly for the regional bureaus, with whom I worked very closely, uh, were staying on top of uh, other issues that were developing all across the board and making sure that they didn't come by to haunt us, that we did what we could very early in the game uh, to treat with them. Uh, I worked very closely with Stuart Eisenstadt, who was the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, and we had a close and, I think, very collegial relationship in in, in our common work in the State Department for Secretary Albright. Mm-hmm. Of all the administrations you've served in, was there a president you had the closest relationship to or felt you could most relate to? Well, I think, interestingly enough, perhaps not that it was an extremely close relationship, but mm-hmm. I think George H.W. Bush, Bush, who had visited me in almost every post I had, and who quite surprisingly asked me, it was a surprise to me at least, I may not have been a surprise to him, <laughs> to go to New York and represent him in New York, and uh, a, a job he knew because he'd done it. Uh, it was both an honor and a pleasure to do that, and he assured me that he would have me in in meetings in Washington. He didn't wish to make New York uh, and that job a member of the cabinet. I understood that. That was not something that I thought was a sine qua non of my accepting the post. Rather, it was something of a diversion. Um, and I enjoyed New York tremendously, and perhaps it was at that period of time, we've just talked about it, one of the most fascinating uh, jobs I had in the entire uh, span of my you know, roughly 40 years in the American Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. Was there one post you enjoyed the most, whether it was New York or someplace else, and one that you possibly would have preferred not to spend time in? No, I thought they were all different. Mm-hmm. People said, oh, well, did you really like Nigeria? I enjoyed Nigeria. I traveled mm-hmm. around Nigeria, the 36 states of Nigeria. Now there were 19 when I was there. I got a chance to visit all of them. I, uh, I'm very high on travel, as you can hear from what I had to say previously on our on our chat here today. But sure. uh, my my sense was that it was an extremely interesting country with a lot going on, uh, and uh, a lot of it hidden away, if I could put it this way, in the corners and crevices 
of a very big country sitting on the equator, equation in the equator. I'm sorry, mm. with a with a with the largest population in Africa, and a place that that we should be engaged in. But I enjoyed Jordan. I enjoyed El Salvador and the challenge there of dealing with a civil war and 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 some horrendous human rights problems. I enjoyed Israel particularly. I enjoyed Jordan in many ways. I was the first. Uh, American ambassador to an Arab country, also to be an ambassador in Israel. There are four members of that group now, and I like to call it the Schizophrenic Society for obvious <laughs> reasons, but uh, it, was a, it was a very interesting time. So I was particularly lucky. Not only did I have a number of posts, but I had a number of posts that ran a very broad scope uh, around the world. No one was ever exactly like the other, uh, but had an opportunity to compare notes, learned a lot, learned that politics is not so uh, transcendentally different from one country to the other <laughs> that you couldn't learn from one country what what might be important. I found, interestingly enough, El Salvador very interesting because it was originally settled by the Spanish in the period just a few years after the Arab expulsion from Spain. And uh, many of the ideas and many of the cultural thoughts in history uh, reflected things that I had learned about the Arabs in the Arab world, even though they had by then been brought by the Spanish in the early 1500s to Central America, but hung on as things that uh, that uh, influenced their society. So there were lessons learned that cut across what are seemingly cultural divides, but if you look back in history, uh, they have a common relationship. No, that definitely makes sense. So a few uh, miscellaneous questions here. Um, after your diplomatic career, you went and, and did some work in the private sector and worked for Boeing. How did that experience with them compare to your public service? Well, I enjoyed Boeing very much. In many ways, more than I thought it would, there is a frequent view among people in the private sector who have not worked in government or not worked for an extensive period in government that the private sector is entirely different and the private sector can show government a lot. And there are things that the private sector can show government, but there are interestingly enough things that government can show the private sector as well, particularly working uh, across um, the entire scope of the U.S. effort. Uh, one thing the American ambassador has uniquely, uh, the, he or she is the one place in the United States uh, government where the whole of government uh, is combined, that the ambassador is in charge of a place, sometimes having up to 40 agencies of the government represented, but in charge of that and runs it. And so he runs uh, a whole-of-government shop, if I could put it that way, in a foreign country and has to look after our relationships, whether they're looked at by the, uh, the, the Federal Aviation Administration uh, or defense or the intelligence community, uh, or the State Department, or the economic portion of the U.S. government. He's engaged in all of those. Uh, and I found in corporations, it was sometimes harder uh, to bring all the facets of a very device corporation together uh, and look at it uh, from from a, a central perspective as being synergized among themselves and drawing on those pieces for lessons. I learned that at the Boeing company, that it took some time for that to happen, Boeing, when I arrived, had within uh, a year or two of my arrival uh, absorbed uh, McDonnell Douglas, uh, 
uh, pieces of Rockwell and Hughes. Uh, it was a company that uh, had grown in an enormous way, and, but it kept these separate cultures from the corporate past, and it took, I think, three or four years while I was there to begin to break those down and look at Boeing across those cultures and across those relationships in a way that was much more uh, synergized and integrated. Uh, and so those were, were, were interesting pieces. Um, people in, in, in the corporate world, I learned a great deal of how you manage, obviously, particularly to, to shareholder value and to money and how and what way you, 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 you need to pay clearly uh, serious attention to, to, uh, to budgets and uh, how you manage those portions uh, of the outlook. Government has uh, 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 535, <laughs> put it this way, people. Sure. It reports to one way or another on the Hill. Uh, and so it's not uh, totally unified. And uh, rather than having things like you know shareholder value and measures of profit uh, to look at for success or failure, you have the judgments and estimations of what uh, clearly – a room full of laws governing how and in what way the government operates, um, and and a, a capital full of people who expect in one way or another to play such a role. Sure. Uh, we can ignore those uh, effects, by the way. We can go a little bit over that. You, so. you told just, me that. And yeah, I just I just, uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> just emphasize that. Um, yeah. But no, those are uh, those are some good points you made. I also heard something interesting that I didn't expect. Uh, apparently, you're an archaeology buff. Uh, was there something yeah. that triggered your interest in that, or is there a particular area yes, of archaeology? I yeah, I studied history mm -hmm. uh, and was very much interested in how and in what way archaeology contributed to the knowledge of history. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, it was uh, uh, kind of a very interesting, you know, uh, exposure to uh, a new science and a new field and a new way of doing business. And I found, particularly in Jordan, an opportunity to travel widely in the country and find uh, new uh, places that had not really been reported on, uh, uh, where there were archaeology, archaeological remains to look at and where there were interesting things uh, to pay attention to. Uh, my wife particularly became extremely interested uh, took a master's level course from an expert uh, on uh, pottery identification in, in Jordan, which was a major tool for determining um, the age and the occupants of many archaeological sites. And so uh, learning about pottery from her and from the people she was taking the course with, and we often traveled together around Jordan, was really terrific because you could walk over uh, uh, an archaeological site and pick up pieces of pottery on the surface and, and tell who'd been there and what time periods it had been occupied, for example. Mm -hmm. Great. So looking forward, uh, what foreign policy challenges do you find the most concerning, and how would you personally address them? I think the question of how and what way <clears throat> we deal with the nuclear dimension of foreign policy is extremely important because if there is one-tenth of 1% 1 chance that anybody would use a nuclear weapon, that would set off a chain of events that we can imagine, but we don't know much about how we stop it uh, once that kind of position, once that kind of development takes place. And so I'm worried 
about people who are now talking about nuclear weapons as if they're sort of hand grenades. Uh, and I, I worry about that because I think we need to be spending a great deal more time and attention, particularly with Russia, but also with China, in bringing that dimension of, of uh, foreign uh, security policy under tighter control. We did it during the Cold War. We, we got a lot of gray hair over the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we should have. Uh, and we learned some things then that we introduced to introduce to bring in further controls. Uh, I'm worried about trade wars. I think they produce very little in the way of benefits. The, the preoccupation in the United States at the moment with goods trade, without looking at the fact that uh, goods and services are the combined basis uh, for judging uh, trade balances, uh, and that having a positive trade balance on a bilateral basis with every country in the world is really quite an impossibility. It isn't going to happen. But having global trade balance that's in our favor, which we do have, is very, very important, and I think that makes sense. I also think that protectionism uh, in trade is a serious mistake. It puts us in a position of walling off uh, areas where we are, as a result of competition, uh, declining to... Uh, lead to, 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 to meet the demand. Uh, competition is good for us, uh, but competition shouldn't be something we defeat by walling off uh, unproductive areas uh, of uh, production and activity uh, and charging our own people higher prices. We, we should be, in many ways, looking at the balance of exports and imports as an important way of holding down costs uh, of improving technology of putting uh, science uh, to work, staying at the leading edge, if I could put it that way, which has been what the United States pattern has of developing new products, new services, uh, new ways of doing things, staying on top uh, of the information revolution that's out there now. So I, I think that's a problem that uh, we are not addressing in a, in a serious way. I think that terrorism, uh, failing states, uh, small wars amplifying themselves are all major questions at issue. They require, in my view, the building of strong coalitions of friends and allies. If we're not careful about how we do that, uh, or if we fail to do that effectively, we're soon going to end up alone having to face the major problems of the world rather than build, as we have over the period, even during the Cold War, a strong sense of uh, of commitment on the part of friends to be there to help us uh, when we move ahead. And that isn't all measured exactly about how much they contribute to their own defense. It's measured by a wide variety of things, including uh, their ability to exercise diplomatic and economic power, as well as pure military power in supporting us and supporting our views and attitudes uh, around the world. Uh, a lot of uh, of these pieces that I have mentioned relate directly to our leadership position, and I think our leadership position is being increasingly questioned, and I would find that uh, uh, difficult. I think we need to pay a great deal of attention. If we're not leading, we're going to be led by somebody else or challenged by somebody else, mm. um, and that's a position I, I don't really think it suits our national interest to get ourselves into. No, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, one issue with our foreign policy that I really never understood. Um, for instance, Jordan is more of a progressive, modern uh, monarchy 
And so they seem like a natural partner to work with. But a country like Saudi Arabia, which is essentially medieval in its beliefs, um, do that, can you give some insight into why we've seen them so much as an ally? Is it just because it's that necessary? Because it, it you know, it's, it's a completely conflicting um, perspective they have. I, I think with respect to both Jordan and Saudi Arabia, we've got to look at the question of, is a modernization something that they want to move in the direction of? And I, I think that uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia has at least shown some significant evidence of the fact that he wants to move in the direction of modernization. He's opened up the door to women driving. He's begun to look at things that are uh, based uh, less around using religious police to enforce cultural standards than opening the door to new opportunities, uh, slow as it is, uh, for women. So I congratulate him on those kinds of things. I think the notion that we are in some ways in our foreign policy and security policy, and hence his, in implacable conflicts with various countries around the world and are not trying to use diplomacy to resolve those. And here I think of Iran. I, the president's worked hard on North Korea. I don't think he's getting as far as he would like to uh, or as he hopes to talk about. Uh, but over time, maybe we can. But uh, opening the door to diplomatic solutions is extremely important. Closing the door to diplomatic solutions and demonizing people, whether it is the Russians, the Chinese, or or the Turks or anybody else, uh, is a is a poor substitute, in my view, for how and in what way we should be managing our relationships around the world. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that. But um, as a, a final point. Uh, with China in particular, I am concerned with their military buildup that they could potentially have some sort of imperialist goals. Do you think that's very likely? Um, because that would, you know, open up Pandora's box. The whole the well, problem. I, I share your concern. We ought to be concerned about anybody who's engaged in a buildup uh, and how and in what way we deal with them. Um, the Chinese, at least, have uh, tried to indicate that. Uh, well, they feel we're too close to their frontier all the time, and they'd like to see us move a little bit distance away. Uh, they are very adept at using economic influence as a form of the extension of Chinese control and influence around the world. We need to be aware of that. Uh, we need, I think, with respect to China as well, uh, to come to understand that over a period of time, Uh, Not only do we have to continue to develop a very strong uh, military and security position with respect to China, but we need to see how and in what way uh, in areas where we have common interests. And I think uh, the Chinese are heavily dependent on the outside world for energy resources, for example. That's something that we need to be paying attention to and how and in what way uh, the Chinese dependence on that part of the outside world is something that gives us an opportunity to have some more significant influence with China uh, as we go ahead. Uh, so I think there there are ways in which uh, we can use diplomacy effective to deal with problems. I'd like to see it backed up by very strong uh, American uh, strength in its military position. But I am very much of the school that it's that kind of strength 
that gives us the opportunity to work out diplomatic solutions and that military solutions to diplomatic problems are not the first choice, but the last resort if, if, if they, we actually need them. And if we do and resort to that kind of military force, we should have exhausted all the other opportunities for solutions before we get there. I think uh, wars of choice uh, need to be very carefully looked at as to whether they serve our interests in the long term or not. Good point. With that, um, I want to thank you again for coming on. It's been really interesting hearing everything you have to say, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Great to join you, and thanks very much. Thanks. Right. That was Thomas Pickering, um, accomplished career ambassador and diplomat. Uh, really a lot of good topics were covered there about his career and about foreign policy today. Uh, so that's it for our show today. And next week, we're making up for some lost ground. Uh, we haven't had a show in a few weeks, so we're doing two programs next week. Wednesday, we'll have on uh, – North Korea expert Ken Gauz, he'll be discussing that issue. We'll be going more into that with that and some of the background um, of everything involved with that whole quandary. And on Thursday, we're switching gears a bit. We'll have Armin Shimmerman on. You know him as Quark from Star Trek Deep Space Nine and a whole host of other roles. We'll be discussing his career and um, Shakespeare and a lot of fun stuff then. So until next time, uh, be sure to follow the Twitter account at Reagan Worldwide, at Reagan Worldwide, and uh, check up, um, check that for any updates on the show. So until next week, I'll see you then. This has been A.J. Bruno for the A.J. Bruno Show. I'm signing off. Thanks.